0: Saturday 19th of October Ralph Cunnington taught two sessions at the Christchurch Manchester School of Theology. This is the second of those sessions where Ralph looks at the topic of prayer. Ralph is a senior pastor of City Church in Manchester. Let's take a listen to the session. Let's move on to prayer and you need another handout. Um, So we're going to hopefully do three very straightforward things as we look at prayer, firstly asking what is prayer, secondly asking uh, why pray, and thirdly asking how do we pray. So before the drinks break, we're going to look briefly at uh, what is prayer. Then we're going to take some time to pray, because there's some lots of things going on that we should be praying about, and I'm not talking about the rugby, our Irish friends. Uh, but you're welcome to pray for that. And, So let's start with what is prayer. Uh, We need to recognize that prayer is not a distinctively Christian thing. Prayer is not a distinctively Christian thing. Uh, There is something resembling prayer in pretty much every world religion. Even those religions that don't believe in the existence of God, like Buddhism, have something resembling prayer. Uh, As Tim Keller notes in his book on prayer, which is excellent, Theorists on prayer tend to distinguish between two different types of prayer. So there is mystical meditative prayer. Mystical meditative prayer, which is the sort of prayer you get in Buddhism, uh, which is inward looking prayer. It is seeking uh, changes of consciousness and seeking inner peace through prayer. The, the focus is inward rather than outward. That's type one. Uh, type two is prophetic prayer. Uh, the focus here in prophetic prayer is outward. It is on petitioning a divine being outside of yourself. Now, in the 19th and 20th century, uh, there was a big emphasis on mystical Prayer. It was held up as being far better than this prophetic sort of prayer. Contemplation was seen as being a, a high and a sophisticated form of prayer, finding that inner peace, changing your consciousness through prayer. But, but other people disagreed and, and saw mystical prayer as necessarily tending in an atheistic and a humanistic direction. Uh, one of those people was Frederick Heiler. Frederick Heiler, in his book, Prayer, A Study in the History and Psychology of Religion, he argued in favour of prophetic prayer. And he noted two differences between mystical and prophetic prayer. Firstly, mystical prayer, Heiler says, emphasises the imminence I-M-M-A-N-E-N-C-E, the imminence of God, rather than his transcendence. So, so immanence is the fact that God can personally relate to us. God comes to us into our world and our experience. Transcendence is about God being other, being outside us, being beyond our apprehension. Mystical prayer emphasizes the fact that God is. Come to us. He's he's relatable to us. He can be personally engaged with by us. Uh, Mystical prayer. Number two has a different view of grace. This is really important. Within mystical prayer. Prayer itself can be a means of experiencing grace and prayer can be something meritorious in itself. So so prophetic prayer, which realizes that God is outside of us, looks outside of us for our needs to be met, looks for grace outside of ourselves. Whereas mystical prayer looks within, sees that grace can be conveyed through our experience in prayer, through our growing in our consciousness of God. So, so mystical prayer effectively erodes the barrier between us and God. Prophetic prayer leads to a much greater sense of difference and an awareness of our sinfulness. Just turn in pairs, what type of prayer do you tend towards and why? Okay, just a minute, just share. What type of prayer, our prophetic and mystical prayer, do you tend towards and why? (laughs) Okay. Um, all those who were with mystical prayer raise your hands Ooh. all those all those who tend towards mystical prayer raise your hands okay all those who tend towards prophetic prayer okay Okay, I, think, I think a slight apprehension, whichever way you go, is probably desirable. Um, in their extreme forms, I think mystical prayer is more problematic than prophetic prayer. In their extreme forms. Uh, the prophetic form of prayer is certainly more biblical, because it is right to maintain a proper distinction between us and God. He is creator, we are creature. We, we mustn't understate, however... That the personal and relational aspect of prayer. That's exactly what we've read about in Hebrews, isn't it? That we can have confidence to approach the throne of grace. We have access. And we mustn't understate the, the way that the prayer can enable us to have this calm contemplation of God's beauty and his love and his glory. Uh, Tim Keller gives the example of uh, Jonathan Edwards as someone who spoke. In the prophetic tradition of prayer, and yet described himself as being emptied and annihilated in prayer. Listen to this. It's from his personal narrative, which is like his journal of spiritual experience. Edward says, once as I rode into the woods for my health in 1737, having alighted from my horse in a retired place, as my manner commonly has been, to walk for divine contemplation and prayer. I had a view that for me was extraordinary of the glory of the Son of God as mediator between God and man, and his wonderful, great, full, pure and sweet grace and love, and meek and gentle condescension. This grace that appeared so calm and sweet appeared also great above the heavens. The person of Christ appeared ineffably excellent, with an excellency great enough to swallow up all thoughts and conception, which continued as near as I can judge about an hour, which kept me the greater part of the time in a flood of tears and weeping aloud. I felt the ardency of a soul to be what I know not otherwise, how to express emptied and annihilated, to lie in the dust and to be full of Christ alone, to love him with a holy and a pure love, to trust in him, to live upon him, to serve and follow him and to be perfectly sanctified and made pure with a divine and heavenly purity. I have several other times had views very much of the same nature and which have had the same effects. Do you see, we should be pursuing the the sort of experience of the intimacy of God that someone like Jonathan Edwards has. But it comes first from recognising that that is not something which we can get ourselves, but something which must be given to us. The, The one who starts prayer is the one who speaks first. And that is always God. God is the one who initiates prayer. He has spoken. He has said, Come. He, he has said, You can approach the throne of grace with confidence because I have already made that possible through Jesus. So the prophetic conception of prayer is right. We don't meet God through our own inward effort, but having met God external to us. Through prayer, we pursue the intimacy that is ours through Christ's work. Uh, Tim Keller describes prayer as a personal, communicative response to the knowledge of God. All prayer is responding to God. In all cases, God is the initiator. Hearing always precedes asking. God comes to us first, or we would never reach out to him. The clearer our understanding of who God is, the better our Prayers. Uh, that's all I want to say on that. What is prayer? God is our, uh, prayer is our response to God having spoken to us first. And therefore prayer and the development of the intimacy of that relationship in prayer must always be responsive on his terms. But going deep with him through the experience of prayer. And with that in mind, before our coffee break... Uh, let's spend some time praying. I think it would be good for us to pray for our nation today, wouldn't it? Um, these, these are strange, strange times. The first meeting of Parliament on the weekend since the Falklands War. Uh, and what happens, will have big ramifications, whatever way it goes. Uh, but let's pray for our city as well. Let's plead with the Lord. What we believe, like Paul believes, that the Lord has many people in this city. So let's plead on their behalf for mercy. Let's spend five minutes praying together. Let me just pray. Father, we we thank you so much that you are the one who has established every authority. Thank you that that means it includes those meeting in Parliament today. And we, we trust you with your decision in that. And we pray, Lord, that you'd help us to submit. Uh, we've looked at First Peter and, Lord, we long to be those who live lives that cause people to praise you when you return. And would we do that by, by being the best of citizens? Thank you that while many of our neighbours are, are really stressed and worried about what will happen with Brexit or without Brexit, thank you that we do not need to fear because we know that there is a higher throne and that you sit upon it. And Lord, would our confidence in our King, our one who is better than the angels, our one who has gone through the heavens and sits in the throne, would our confidence in you enable us to have great joy and great peace that is appealing. And Lord, in your mercy, would we be those who do not care about our own reputation or our own safety or our own comfort, but long for nothing more than for every tongue to declare your praises. Every need to bow before you and declare that you are good and you are better than anything, anything at all this world has to offer. Oh man. Better than coffee even, but let's have some coffee. Yeah. Um, we're going to restart, and we're going to look at uh, that first question, uh, second question rather, of why pray. And to do this, uh, we're going to rely on what Jesus Tells us to turn up at Matthew Chapter Seven, and I'm going to read verses seven to twelve. Matthew Chapter Seven, verses seven to twelve. Ask If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Let me pray. Father, thank you that this is the one we come to you. You who call on us to ask to seek, to knock. You who promises that you are far better than the very best father in the world. Thank you that you have given us everything we need, supremely in Jesus. Amen. Um, so I really want to just fix on, on two reasons to pray to answer that why question from Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. And the first reason from verses uh, seven uh, and eight is to pray because Jesus commands you to. So so verse seven, there are three imperatives, three invitations, three commands. Jesus says, ask, seek, knock. And notice the repetition there in verse eight. He really wants us to get this. He doesn't want us to miss it. He's saying, you need to do this pray please pray 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 ask seek knock and the verbs that jesus uses here they're all in the present tense Uh, and the present tense in in greek uh, means that they are continuing that they're they're motion verbs So, so it means keep on asking keep on seeking Keep on knocking. This is not a once for all. This is a keeping on. Jesus wants us to pray, and he wants us to pray persistently. And that is because the Christian life, from beginning to end, is entirely dependent upon grace, entirely dependent upon God's unmerited kindness and generosity. We we never grow out of grace. Now, would you want to ask the question, why does Jesus use three different words here? Why does he say, ask, seek, and knock, rather than say, pray, pray, pray? Why use those different words? Well, imagine for a moment, uh, back in uh, my house, back home, and uh, my youngest son, uh, he's growing up quick, but he can't quite reach the cupboard in our kitchen, which contains our glasses. So if he wants uh, a glass to drink, he needs to come and ask for it. Now, if we're playing together in the living room uh, when he feels thirsty, he can just simply ask, can't he? And then I'll go and get him the drink. But if he's in the living room and I'm in the kitchen, then then my son Jacob, he's going to have to come down from the living room. He's going to have to seek me out in order to ask me. But if I'm busy doing last minute sermon prep upstairs in my bedroom with the door shut... He knows that he's going to have to come up, and he's going to have to knock, seek, and then ask. Do you see what's going on with those three different verbs? They're marking out different levels of accessibility. And what Jesus is saying here is that we should pray to God no matter how far away he may feel to us. There are times in our life when, when we can feel really very distant from God. Perhaps some of us are feeling that way now. That sometimes it's because something has happened in our life and we just feel like he's a long way away. Sometimes it's because we've done something. That there's some persistent sin that just doesn't go away. And, and we feel like it is presenting a barrier between us and him. Perhaps we feel like we're let down by him. What Jesus says to us no matter how you feel, knock because the door will be opened. Seek because you will find him. Ask because he will respond. You can come freely. Because whatever you've done, Jesus has paid the price. For your access through the cross, exactly what we saw again and again and again in the book of Hebrews. We have confidence to come because Jesus has done it. All we need to do is ask. And Jesus says, do it. We pray because Jesus commands us to. Second reason why we pray. uh, From verses 9 to 12, we pray because God delights to give us good gifts. Jesus issues this command to pray three times in verse 7, but he issues the promise that his father will respond no less than seven times. Look at that. There's uh, three times in verse 7, and then again three times in the parallel verse, verse 8, and then once more in verse 11, he promises that his father will answer. Do you see what he's saying? Jesus is saying, I I want you to pray. I want everyone to pray, verse 8, because everyone who asks receives. Pray confidently. Pray expectantly. Pray because you will, you will receive. And the reason for this is given in this illustration in verse 11. Verse 11. Which of you, if your son... Asks for bread, we'll give him a stone. Or if he asks you for a fish, we'll give him a snake. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Now imagine, you know, I'm back home later this afternoon and I'm, I'm cooking dinner because it's a Saturday. And instead of serving up steak and chips, I serve up rocks and snakes. It's just ridiculous, isn't it? There is no way that I would do that because I love Anna and I love my three children. And I'd never do anything to endanger or hurt them. And I feel that way. I, I had that inbuilt sense of love and a desire to provide for my family even verse 11 though I am evil even though I'm evil the point Jesus is making here is even the very best of fathers in this world they're still evil And yet they give good gifts to their children. So how much more so our heavenly Father who is perfect in his righteousness, goodness and love. Uh, The great 4th century theologian Augustine put it really well. He said, for what would God not give to sons when they ask, when he has already granted this very thing? Namely, that they might be sons. Do you see the point? If you're a Christian here this morning, God has already given you the biggest gift imaginable. He has adopted you into his family as sons. Even if you're women, you are sons because you are the ones who inherit, co heirs with Christ. You know, when a Muslim prays to Allah, They pray as a subject. But when an agnostic prays, those those prayers when they they face sickness or sadness, they're hesitant and, and they're desperate and they're uncertain whether they'll get an answer. When we as Christians pray, we pray with joy and expectation, and anticipation, because we know that we're a beloved child, and God will answer. And he always answers for our good. That's a wonderful reason to pray today, isn't it? We approach God confidently because Jesus commands us to, and because we know surely our Heavenly Father will give us good gifts. So back into your tables. Can you discuss amongst yourselves those two questions? Uh, What stops you from praying? And secondly, what aspects of God's character and your status do you need to remind yourselves of as you prepare to pray? Okay, let's come back together. Uh, We're going to move on to the question of how do we pray? Um, And I'd like us to focus... uh, Hopefully on two passages, but at least on on Daniel chapter 9. Can you turn that up with me? Daniel chapter 9, verses 1 to to 19. Daniel chapter 9 says this. In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom... In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah, the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our ancestors, and to all the people of the land. Lord, you are righteous. But this day we are covered with shame. The people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, both near and far, in all the countries where you have scattered us because of our unfaithfulness to you. We and our kings, our our princes and our ancestors are covered with shame, Lord, because we have sinned against you. The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving. Even though we have rebelled against him, we have not obeyed the Lord our God or kept the laws he gave us through his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. Therefore, the curses and sworn judgments written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against you. You have fulfilled the words spoken against us and against our rulers by bringing on us great disaster. Under the whole heaven, nothing has ever been done like what has been done to Jerusalem. Just as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come on us. Yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our sins and giving attention to your truth. The Lord did not hesitate to bring the disaster on us. For the Lord our God is righteous in everything he does, yet we have not obeyed him. Now, Lord our God, who brought your people out of Egypt with a mighty hand and who made for yourself a name that endures to this day. We have sinned. We have done wrong. Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, turn away your anger and your wrath from Jerusalem, your city, your holy hill. Our sins and the iniquities of our ancestors have made Jerusalem and your people an object of scorn to all those around us. Now, our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant. For your sake, Lord, look with favour on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, our God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests to you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear and act for your sake, my God. Do not delay because your city and your people bear your name. I just want us to To notice three things about how we pray from Daniel's prayer. Firstly, Daniel's prayer was prompted by the word of God. Do you remember when we look at what is prayer, we saw that God is the initiator. God speaks and we respond to him. That's the direction with prayer. And that is exactly what we see here in Daniel chapter 9. Look at verse 2. We're told that in the first year of his reign, I Daniel, the first year of Darius's reign, I Daniel understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah, the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last seventy years. The reason Daniel praises is that he's been reading the Bible. He's been reading the scriptures. And in the scriptures that day, Daniel had got to what we now know today as Jeremiah chapter 25, verses 8 to 14. And from Jeremiah 25, he realized an astonishing truth. Now, to understand the significance of this, just a quick recap on Bible history, okay? So, uh, way back um, in Joseph's day, the Israelites go to Egypt, Things turn bad, they're enslaved by Pharaoh. They cry out for rescue and God sends Moses to be their rescuer, to deliver them out of slavery in Egypt and into the promised land, promised to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12. Now they stumble and they fall. Eventually, under Joshua, they get brought into the promised land. And having received on the mountains the, the, the promises of either blessing or judgment for obedience or disobedience, they proceed to disobey. And the curses of disobedience, uh, crucial to them is that they will be cast out of the promised land. God is really patient with them. They rebel for hundreds of years, and that's how long it takes before God fulfills that promise of curse. By initially taking the northern kingdom out via Assyria And then eventually the southern kingdom of Judah through the rule of Babylon. But God had sent prophets. Prophets that were predicting and prophesying this judgment. And in one of the prophecies, the the prophecy of Jeremiah. Jeremiah said, yes, you will be taken to exile. But it will last just 70 years. Just 70 years. Now, As Daniel reads that promise, that this judgment will just last 70 years, he suddenly realizes that time's up. The 70 years is complete. And so what does he do? Well, verse 3, he prays seriously, earnestly, in in sackcloth and ashes. Just a few things to, to think about. Firstly, it's interesting that Daniel was reading the Bible, isn't it? Now, now you might think, well, that's not very significant at all. We, we, We all read the Bible, don't we? Yeah? Good, good. But just think about who Daniel was. Daniel, by this time, he'd received direct personal revelation from God on numerous occasions. God spoke to him direct. God did astonishing miracles in his life. How many of us can say that God has spoken to us direct in a way that's recorded in Scripture? None of us. Yet what do we find Daniel doing here? Reading God's word in search of God's will for his life. You see, Daniel was hungry for God's word. And he sought to satisfy that desire in the Bible. And so should we. Secondly, notice that Daniel made time both for reading the Bible and for prayer. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel that I am so busy that I don't have time to pray. I just feel like I've got too much on today. I can't spend that time in prayer. Daniel was the prime minister to one of the most powerful monarchs that had ever lived. He made Boris Johnson, even today, look like a sloth. And yet Daniel still found time for prayer and reading his Bible. And Martin Luther, uh, the great reformer, he was a pretty busy man. He, he preached um, sometimes seven or eight times a week. He makes Tim and I look like lightweights. <laughs> on one particularly busy day, Luther famously said, I have so much to do today that I'm going to need to spend three hours in prayer in order to be able to get it all done. Wow. You see, prayer is not a waste of time on a busy day. Daniel knew that, Martin Luther knew that. And I wonder, do we? Do we realise it's the best thing to do, whether we're busy or not? Uh, thirdly, um, notice how it was God's word that prompted Daniel's prayer. It, it's pretty startling, isn't it? I don't, if I've been a captive in Babylon uh, for, for decades and decades, and I suddenly discovered it was about to end, I don't know what you would do, but I, I think I'd throw a party. I think I crack open a bottle of champagne and celebrate. This is great news. But not Daniel. Daniel puts on sackcloth, throws ashes over his head, and has a big time of prayer. And that's because God's word prompts prayer. And we're getting into another realm here, which you probably covered in another school of theology. Uh, But it's worth dwelling on this a bit, about the relationship between God's sovereignty and our responsibility to pray. We need to learn a few things about that from Daniel chapter 9. You see, God's sovereignty does not mean that we Christians are fatalists. A fatalist would see that God has promised something and just just wait. Wait for it to happen. God's going to do it. He doesn't need me. It sounds very spiritual, doesn't it? So I'll just wait for him to do it. But that's not what Daniel does. He doesn't just fatalistically wait for God to fulfill his promise. Secondly, although God could, if he wanted, make things happen simply by zapping them, That's not the way that God has decided to work. Instead, God God employs means to bring about his sovereign purposes. And those means almost always involve the prayers of his people. God works by the prayers of his people. Um, C.H. Spurgeon, the 19th century preacher, had had an interesting illustration, which I'm going to steal on this. Um, He said, prayer is like a homing pigeon. Prayer is like a homing pigeon. It begins in the heart of God. It is sent out and it lands in the heart of God's people, who then send it back to the heart of God. That's how Christian prayer works. Prayer begins with God, his purpose and will, which he expresses to us, his people, and it comes to rest in us as we grasp his word, and then we pray it back to him, and he fulfills his purposes and his promises. Have you ever read about the great awakenings in America in the 19th century but between the years of eighteen fifty-seven and eighteen fifty-eight, one million Americans were converted. And that was at a time when there were very, very few people in America. How did it all begin? With a series of lunchtime prayer meetings on Fulton Street in New York, which started with just a handful of believers and grew and grew and grew. God works by the prayers of His people. Those prayers—they're the homing pigeon. Of God's promise sent back to him. Prayer, prayer moves the hand that moves the world. Prayer moves the hand that moves the world. I guess I want to ask you do you really believe that? Do you really believe that? Do you really believe that if God is going to bring Spiritual renewal, if God is going to bring revival to our city, his ordained means of doing that is by you praying, by me praying, by our churches praying. You know, do you read the promises of God, That the promise that he is making you to be a holy people, a, a people who reject and run away from lust who reject and run away from greed, who find your identity solely in who you are as children of God? Do you read those promises, believe them, and know that God's chosen, ordained means to bring those things about is through your prayers? Is that what you pray for? Are your prayers prompted by God's word because you know the God's ordained means of accomplishing his purposes in the world for you, for this city, for this nation, for this world, is through your prayers. Are your prayers prompted by God's word? Uh, secondly, verses four through to seventeen, we we see that in Daniel's prayer, how does he pray? He prays, flicking over the page on your handouts, he, he prays by pleading God's character. Uh, Now, the structure of the prayer is long, but it's actually really quite straightforward. It's it's a prayer of confession. So in verses 5 through to 14, Daniel confesses his sin and confesses the sin of the nation. Uh, Then in verse 15 through to 19, he pleads for God's mercy. Now, you're getting towards the end of your school of theology, so you know we need to be really careful as we try to learn lessons from Daniel. Because Daniel is praying a specific prayer at a specific point in redemptive history. We, we are not living in exile in Babylon. We are not representing God's people of Israel. We are not seeking to return to Jerusalem. We are not seeking, verse 17, to, to restore the temple in Jerusalem. Those are specific requests which can't and shouldn't be repeated by us today. But but line. Behind those specific requests are some general principles that need to be there in all of our prayers today. The first general principle is the need for confession. You see, Daniel rightly understood what God is like. And he rightly understood what he and the people of Israel were like. And he knew that that meant that the first priority was to confess their sin. Look at verse four. Verse four. What's God like? He is the great and awesome covenant God of Israel who is to be trusted and obeyed. But they, verse five, they have sinned and done wrong. They have been wicked and rebelled. Look at the vivid contrast again in verse 7. Lord, you are righteous, but this day we are covered with shame. Then verse 9. The Lord our God, he is merciful and forgiving, even though we have rebelled against him. Do you see, Daniel rightly understands God, and he rightly understands himself and his people. And if we do the same, we will be moved to prayer And confession. So let me ask you, is confession a fundamental part of your prayer life, personally? Is that what you prayed this morning? Is that what you pray when you gather together as a fellowship? Confessing your sin. When was the last time that you confessed your sin like Daniel? Holding nothing back, making no excuses. Not dealing in the generic stuff. We're good at this, aren't we? Father God, I'm sorry that I failed you. I'm sorry that I've I've been proud and, you know, a little bit jealous from time to time and maybe a little bit covetous. I'm really sorry about that. Thank you, Jesus. I'm not talking about those sort of prayers. I'm talking about drilling down into those symptoms that reveal a heart that is still in so many ways in rebellion against God. When was the last time you got really down and, and honest in the dirtiness of your sin with God? Please don't think that I am criticising CCM here or any of the other churches. You know, people at City Church Manchester, they they come and grumble to me about no end of things. Okay, Music's too loud, music's too quiet, sermons last too long, sermons are too short, sermons are too engaging. (laughs) They've never done that one. Um, (laughs) And another thing they've never grumbled about is that we confess our sin too often? And they never ever ask, can we confess our sin more? That's, that's an issue, isn't it? Yeah. Well, why aren't they grumbling that we don't confess our sin enough? It's a fundamental part of who we are as we approach God on His terms. And I wonder whether it's, well, it's got to be one of two things. Either we don't sufficiently understand who God is in his righteousness and holiness, or we have an utterly unrealistic view of who we are by nature as sinners, redeemed sinners, sons of God. But still, those who this side of Christ return continue to sin. Uh, Secondly, when we confess our sin, we need to plead God's character. That's exactly what Daniel does here. He doesn't try to defend himself, he doesn't make excuses. He doesn't say, God, you're being unfair. You're just being unrealistic. You know I'm a sinner. He does the complete opposite. Verse 7, Lord, you are righteous, but this day we are covered with shame. God, you're right to do what you did. You, you were right to send us into exile. You were right to punish us. We deserve nothing. we got no defense. We deserve it. But look at what Daniel does next. After confessing his sin, verses 9 to 15, he pleads God's mercy and compassion. Look at verse 18. Look at what he says. Second sentence of verse 18. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. Uh, the Puritan believers who, who lived in the 17th century, they used to talk about suing God in prayer. Suing God in prayer. It sounds a bit odd, doesn't it? Bringing a legal case about, against God. But, but what they meant by that was that they, in prayer, they made claims against God based upon who he is and who he's revealed himself to be. And that's exactly what Daniel does here. He pleads in a legal sense to God to be consistent with his character. And when we pray, we need to do the same thing. We need to plead the character of God. We need to plead his righteousness, but also his grace and his forgiveness. The fact that forgiveness has been won by the blood of Christ on the cross. That is the reason why I have confidence before the throne of grace. That is the reason why God can never, ever turn me away, no matter what I've done. No matter how terrible, no matter how I feel, I can approach the throne of grace pleading his character and his work. Listen to this from First John chapter 1, verse 9. Having said that we, we must be those who confess our sin, he says, If we confess our sins, he, that is God, is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Third thing to see, verses 18 to 19. So we should confess our sin, we should plead the character of God, and thirdly, we should prioritise the glory of God. Um, I think, I'm not alone, but my prayers are, are often very, very self-centred. Um, so if anything like me, your, your prayerometer, your, your measure of how much you're praying, goes up and down depending on what's going on in your life. If, if you feel like things are, are really out of control, uh, you pray much more. Whereas if things are just going smoothly, you, you're kind of praying on maintenance mode. Yeah, so I always pray when I get on an aeroplane. Because <laughs> I know that I cannot fly it, and if anything goes wrong, I'm stuffed. I need God. Now, there is nothing wrong with those sort of emergency prayers. Our Heavenly Father, as we saw when we looked at Matthew 7, he delights to hear all of our prayers, all of our requests. But alongside prayers like that, we need to have a constancy of praying, prayers that that prioritize the glory of God. But that's exactly what Daniel does in this prayer in chapter 9. Just look at the end of it. Look at what he says. Verse 19, Lord, listen, Lord, forgive, Lord, hear and act. Why? For your sake. My God. Do not delay because your city and your people bear your name. You see, Daniel gets that because of God's covenant with Israel, God has staked His glory on his people. And the same is true today. God has staked his glory on CCM. On your church, whichever church you're from today. Which means that our good is tied up with his glory. So we need to prioritise prayers that bring God glory, because our future and our good is so tied up with it. So, so when we look at our city, the city of Manchester, and we see the poverty, the spiritual poverty of millions, literally millions of people who are turning their back on God, we, we shouldn't be throwing up our hands and, and praying, God, save us from the persecution of these wicked, terrible people. We should be praying, oh, glorify your name. Show that you are great in our city. Show that you are mighty to save. Honor your name in the great city of Manchester by glorifying your great name above it for the saving of millions. It's fine to pray that we get a 2-1 in our degree. It's fine to pray that we get a promotion. But don't we want to be praying that we would live lives that adorn the gospel? that cause people to glorify God because they see how their servants work with such integrity and uprightness, seeking to serve others rather than be served. Those are the prayers that glorify God. And that should be our priority in prayer. We need to pray glory prayers, kingdom prayers. Um, Over to you for some group discussion, and then we'll have some Q&A. So could you just work through those questions? How do you ensure that your prayer is prompted by God's word? In what way should God's sovereignty encourage your prayers? And then how can you make confession a bigger part of your prayer life? Should we, um, should we come back together? Um, I just want to give an opportunity for any questions. And then I'm going to finish very briefly with that passage. That we're not going to have time to look at it in detail, but ties things together. Yeah. Abby. I think something I sometimes struggle with with prayer is that I love that communication with God and praying with others, but sometimes I can feel like you well, are just saying the words mm-hmm. and saying, like, And, and, and change those issues, like going back to the like, thing we first started with, like, yeah. yeah, how can we sort of Yeah, I think it's sometimes because we spend such a large amount of our time praying for things that aren't necessarily in line with God's will, so I, I know I do that all the time, which is usually for an easy life. Sure. Well, one of the prayers that I pray that usually is answered with a yes is for opportunities to share the gospel. Um, because, I, you know, I know that that's likely to be the with a yes, because that's clearly God's desire. And you're absolutely right. So if I pray those prayers, in my experience, I get far more opportunities. And then it becomes much more easy to relate to God direct on that, because it's a conversation on his terms, which, which goes back to what we saw at the beginning, that, that prayer is a response to him speaking to us first. So he's a father who delights to hear me moan about all, well, not moan, but share my burdens in a whole load of areas. But if I want the sort of communication where it's really interactive in a way where we're walking together in the same direction, it's going to be praying in line with his will and then acting in line with it and then seeing what he does through it. So I think you're right that there's a combination of not necessarily praying the right things in line with God's word and then not living it out. It's not taking that human responsibility element. God works through the prayers of his people and then through the actions of his people together, inseparably. Yeah. Mm. we've learned the wrong way around we send it out to God and then wait for the answer as opposed to so yes towards yeah that's, that's helpful yeah yeah which is is, is all because we start in the wrong place with prayer on our terms rather than his terms yeah Which chapter? Yeah, um, so I guess that has to be read alongside other passages in Scripture to understand what it's saying. Uh, yeah. There it's, it's being used in the present continuing sense. That if we keep on in a pattern of sinning without repentance, we're basically denying the gospel. Does that make sense? So it's not saying if we sin at all, we do not have access to God. But it's saying that if we continue on that pattern of unrepentance, which is the rebellion that's spoken about earlier on in the book of Hebrews of running away from God, we cannot expect to come. And you see that, that pattern again. So you see it earlier on in um, chapter 6 as well. Um, uh, just really scary warnings uh, about what happens and we cu- we'd be crucifying Christ all over again. But, but there again, the, the issue is that we're co- continuing on a, on a path of unrepentance, or of denying the gospel. And if we deny the gospel, we have no access to God because our confidence to approach the throne of grace is entirely through Christ, our great high priest, having gone there first. And if we continue in rebellion, running away from him, we have no access, and our prayers won't be heard. Uh, but it's not, it's not talking about stumbling into the same sins again and again. If, if we are asking the question of, am I doing this, we almost certainly aren't. My is, because this is a message to those who claim... Um, yeah. Absolutely, and done something against God today. And I think we shouldn't assume that everyone in this room is Christians in terms of born again of the spirit, because, because actually you, know, you, you, read, you read parables um, in, in uh, Matthew 25, and, and it's clear that actually lots of people who profess to be Christians, lots of people who claim to prophesy in Jesus' name, Matthew 7, uh, he will say, I do not know you. Um, so these warnings are real. But, but they're warnings in relation to our fundamental orientation in life. So are we trusting in Christ and in Christ alone? Or are we running away from his once for all sacrifice, from him acting as our great high priest? If we continue in a pattern of sinning that's unrepentant, then there is no way we're trusting in Christ and Christ alone. But a pattern of unrepentance is, is not simply falling into the same sin again, but falling into the same sins again and choosing that that sin is better. Like I want to put that sin before I put Christ. Does that make sense? That's what it's been spoken about both in Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 10, 26. Um, but we do well to ask ourselves that. Like we, the heart is deceitful. Um, we, we enjoy being part of a good church. We go along with the community. But when push comes to shove and Christ calls on me to do something I really don't want to do, whether that's remain single or, or remain childless or remain in a job I hate, do I choose Jesus because he's better? Or do I run after that thing that all my friends are saying you deserve? And my experience in pastoral ministry is that a number of people who've been members of my church have chosen that other way. Yeah. Please God, you'll never be tested that way. Oh, again? Or please God, you'll never be over-tested that way. Yeah, and he, he, he's promised in First Corinthians that we won't be tempted more than we can do. Yeah. Yeah, which is why we need the Holy Spirit, which we've been gloriously given in our conversion. He will persevere us to the end. Yeah, there was another question over here. was that? Yeah, and, and another good place to identify that off the back of what we've seen in First John is how you respond when you fall out with someone at church, particularly if you fall out with the leaders. Um, this, is, this is hard because it really hits home. We show whether we're one of the disciples of Christ by if we love one another, and yet all too often when we fall out with someone at church, we just run. Because we don't That's, want conflict. Because we, uh, sometimes because we don't want conflict, but also because we don't want to admit that we're wrong. We don't want to see the sin in our own lives. The most unsafe thing to do if you fall out with someone at church is to leave that church without that being resolved. But that is one of the worrying signs of an unrepentant life. Um, can I just close by bringing you to that prayer in Ephesians 3? Let me read it just quickly. For this reason, I kneel before, sorry, Ephesians 3, verse 14 to 21. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Very quickly tonight. It's all about God's glory. All about God's glory being revealed in the church. It's a prayer, it's a prayer for transformation. Verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts. That, that word dwell literally means set up house. So you know when you move into a house and you know it's, it's all covered in, in rubbish and dust and you clean it. And then you decorate it and you make it your home. That's what this prayer is for. That, that Jesus would make his home in our lives. That he'd clean us up. That he'd he'd fill us with all the things of him by the Spirit. But notice what the prayer is specifically for. How that cleaning up, how that redecoration in our lives happens. It is verse 18. That you may have power together with all the Lord's people, together with your church. To grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses not. Which brings us right back to Hebrews. Do you want change in your life? Do you want to be made more like Jesus? Do you want him to set up home in you? To clear out the rubbish? To redecorate? You need to get Jesus. You need to go deep with Jesus. You need to grasp him... Personally, relationally, intimately, his love, its height, its width, its depth. That's the prayer. That is the fundamental, foundational prayer that drives all other prayers that we might go deep with Jesus in our knowledge of his love, not as a head thing, but as a heart and a soul thing. So, can I suggest we close just all together, two or three of us, pray? Let's pray this Ephesian prayer. Lord, we do pray. We pray for awesome power. We pray that the same spirit who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead might be at work in us, that we might grasp your love, that we might see how wide, how long, how high, how deep it is, that we might embrace you, that we might know that you are better, that you are the one who satisfies, you are the one we can place our hope on, You are the one who is better than everything and anything this world has to offer. And you are the one who has promised that you will come into us and by the Holy Spirit, you will set up your home in us. You are the one who's promised us that you hold us in your hand and we will never be snatched out of it. You are the one who's promised us that you will persevere us to the end. And Lord, we pray, we admit that we sin that we stumble, that we fall, that we fall into the same things again and again. But we come to you recognising that you are just, you are righteous, you have promised that the good work you have begun in us, you will carry on to completion and you will do it for the praise and the glory of your name. So we ask, glorify yourself in our lives, we pray, and in our churches. Amen.